Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, and then I'll pray. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us open our eyes to the glory of Christ. Open our eyes to the glory of Christ. Confound, Lord, what we hold about him that's false. I pray that you would remove that from our thinking and help us to see him for who he is. Help us to glory in the cross of Christ, as Paul says, only. Uh, to boast only in the Lord. Lord, I pray that anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, they would not lean on their own understanding. They would not see that their hope lies within themselves, but only in Jesus. I pray that they would have faith that you'd be gracious to open their eyes. I pray that we'd all glorify you now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus is speaking to those who are gathered in Jerusalem to, in large part, worship him. At least, that's what they consider that they're doing. Although I don't think they know quite fully who he is, he's speaking to them in verse 23, and he says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified what is what we think it means there, to, to be praiseworthy, to, to be seen as praiseworthy to be seen in all of his glory. And truly, truly, he says in verse 24, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then we read in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. How does that, how does that connect with his glo being glorified? Think about these terms. You think of somebody who's going to be glorified, what do we do with people that are going to be glorified? We exalt them, put them on a pedestal. But he says his soul is troubled in verse 27. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Here's his purpose, and his purpose, the Father's purpose, is that the Son might be glorified in him. Jesus says... But now, his hour of glorification is something that Jesus is troubled by. This hour. And then we read in verse 32, as he's speaking now to a, a mixed group of Greeks and Jews. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now there's the glorification, there's exaltation, right? And then he tells us what he means by his being lifted up. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we can sometimes become accustomed to hearing these words, so much so that we become numb 
to the paradox in them, to, to really the wisdom of God in them. Jesus is explaining to the crowds gathered in Jerusalem to praise him on Palm Sunday that his hour of glorification would begin with his suffering. That's not how people usually think in this world. That's not how they usually talk about excelling or exceeding or being successful in this world. The hour of his exaltation would be the hour of his greatest humiliation. This is the way that Jesus spoke about his going to the cross. Every year, I try to point out that it's a paradox that we call this day that we have on our calendars to remember Jesus' death. We call it Good Friday. If you think about that, this is a day that we believe that our Lord, indeed the Lord of all creation, the creator of heaven and earth, who humbled himself and became like us, the one we trust, the one we love and we follow, the one who was tortured beyond human semblance, as we'll read in Isaiah, he was mocked, he was shamed, he was crucified by sinful men because of our sin, because of us. And we call it good as we remember it. That's a paradox. The world's not going to understand that. And sometimes we ourselves are guilty of portraying Christ as something altogether unlike what the scriptures say about him. We don't give these sorts of portraits of Jesus. We give the nice, clean, rounded edges, the polished Jesus to the world, the one hanging up on our wall who has a glow about him and shines with beautiful blonde locks and Everybody is bowing at every whim and word that he has to say in the picture. If you read the stories of Jesus in Scripture, the only history we have of him, that's so often not the case. And it's not the case by what we'll see this evening. As we've been doing this year so far, we're going through the last of the servant psalms in Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 53. This is the the prophecy of the suffering servant. We're doing this as we come to the Lord's table again tonight. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 tells us who Jesus would be. And in fact, Isaiah gives us this paradoxical picture of the suffering servant. And the first thing it says about him is that he is to be exalted to the superlative degree. Chapter 52 verse 13 says in three different ways that Jesus, the servant, would be high, lifted up, exalted. That is, he would be exalted to the degree of deity. You remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. And what does he say? Holy, holy, holy. This was the superlative degree of praise that only belonged to God. And here it's said of the servant. And in the next verse, that was verse 13, in the next verse, verse 14, there's a crowd gathered there, and and they're seeing this servant, but they're in awe of him for a completely different reason. In fact, probably the better word is they're astonished. Maybe a better word is they're horrified by what they see. 
Because they see this servant who's suffering in verse 14. And it says, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And I've told our church that uh, this means that he did not look human to them. He was so marred, he was so deformed as he suffered and they're looking out at him that he looks something of a monster to them. Not human to this crowd. So he goes from this exaltation that only belongs to God to this suffering that must belong to the worst of all peoples in the world. In verse 14. And then back to verse 15, he talks about this crowd moving, moving from this crowd to now talking about kings that see and hear something they've never seen or heard before in this servant and, and they're muted. They're sh- they've shut their mouths and it takes a lot for a king to shut their mouths. And there's disagreement is this that they're sh- they've shut their mouths in humility. Are they shut- shutting their mouths because God has shut them? He's humbling them. But the point is, the picture of this servant is not a well-rounded, easy to understand, put him in this category, in that category, servant. This is somebody who is altogether, and this is what I want us to understand, he is altogether unique. Yes, we'll see that he's altogether like us, in a sense. But he's unlike us, as well. Our text this evening is, Chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. And it seems like Isaiah is setting the stage for what he says next. Because what he says next is a question about belief. He says, who has believed our report or who has believed what he has heard from us? The prophet is speaking as a representative, I believe, of God's people here. And the question is interpreted in the New Testament as assuming unbelief. Here, it's not necessarily that we would understand it like that. Who has believed what he has heard from us? That just seems like, well, there may be many who have believed what he's heard, what they have heard from us. But when you come to the New Testament, both Paul and Romans and John in John chapter 12 speak of unbelief when they quote or reference this verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 16 Paul is speaking about Israel's unbelief. The majority of Israel to this day remains in unbelief. And he's speaking about that back then in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, and here's his explanation for why they don't believe the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Paul is interpreting Isaiah as foretelling the unbelief in the message, the gospel message. This is the report. You see it there in Romans 10, 16? It's the gospel that they have not obeyed. They have not believed it. John, speaking of those who heard Jesus, speak of his death, as we referred to earlier, in that uh, after the Palm Sunday, after the crowds gathered. Here's what John has to say about that crowd in verse 37 of chapter 12 through verse 40, though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet, so that, you see, this is for the purpose of fulfilling the word that was spoken of the prophet, might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard 
from us. You see, both John, both Paul are inspired by the Holy Spirit to say this phrase regards the future unbelief of the Messiah. Beloved, tonight I want us to reckon and to remember that there are natural difficulties maybe we should say impossibilities in believing on Christ. Both in Jesus' life and here and thus far in Isaiah, and we'll see further, Jesus is not easy to sort out, naturally speaking. The, the, the heretic said that we don't need any help from God to believe on Jesus. We've got everything internal. We've got it all. Pelagius was his name. That's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we're going to read tonight. And I hope and I pray that we'll be unified and worshipped when, when, when we see this tonight. Notice how the, the prophet goes on to speak. Before I get to the, to the latter part of verse 1, I want to see verse 2. Notice how he describes the servant of the Lord here. For he, that is the servant, grew up before him, that's the Lord, like a young plant... And like a root out of dry ground. So the servant we know is Christ in fulfillment. It can be no one else. He matures naturally speaking. That's what the, this means. Naturally he matures before God and his special attention of this servant, his servant. But he seemingly comes from a place that's altogether unnoticeable unremarkable, forgettable, dry ground, a root out of dry ground. In chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah there says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, what is it being indicated here is that the Davidic kingly line would seem to be cut off. That's why there's no tree. It's a stump. And, and from that stump, if you know anything about tree work, I know a little bit about it, you get some trees that they put out sucker trees all over the place. If you have an African tulip here, you know a lot about that because they just sucker everywhere. That's what's being described here. That's the natural origin of the servant that God is paying attention to. But if you know anything about if you cut down a tree, you probably don't want that tree growing up by a sucker. This, this is being described in an undesirable way. The, the Hebrew would have understood this. If you work with plants out here, you understand this. This is not something that will naturally compel somebody to follow that person. This is what, oh, where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in this dry ground near Nazareth. You know, oh, you did, oh. Maybe I'll follow you. I'll give my life for you. The, the prophet is saying that's not why we would follow him. He's, he's telling us this isn't what makes Jesus the servant desirable. And in fact, God made it this way. He planned for this. At the end of chapter or verse 2, he says this. He had no form, speaking about the way he would carry himself, his Look or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
The, Isaiah is not painting the picture on your wall of Jesus with the long blonde flowing hair and the perfect proportions. He wasn't a Calvin Klein model. You know? That's what he's saying here. He, he wasn't compelling by looking at him. You looked at him, he looked probably like your other neighbors that grew up around you. Today, we could say he wouldn't have Instagram followers. You know, Instagram is mostly you get followers because of people like what you look like. In fact, I had to do this because I was going to say something about this. The, the Jenner and the uh, Kardashian sisters, who as far as I know have no skills whatsoever, I don't know if they do, maybe they do, but they have almost a billion people following their every move on Instagram. It's because they're substance, you think? Some of you don't know, you're looking at me like I don't know them, bless your hearts. I barely do, I think. But the rest were famous soccer players. Something you could point to these people. They're all physically remarkable. These great, you know, these are the people we follow, we idolize. This is not who Jesus would have been. And then we see further, deeper than that. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. And right away we need to notice something. In verse 2, we read that he grew up before him. Before him there indicates that the Lord took notice of him. But what happens when men take notice of him? They despise him. So God pays attention to this servant. We'll read later. He, it, he did the, the, the Lord's will. It, this was the Lord's servant. He's interested in his servant. But men despised and rejected him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief is one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And what naturally seems insignificant in the service, servant, God is attentive to him. But we read here that he was despised and rejected by men. Men here are, are not only shunning him, the servant, but the idea is that they treat him as if he's not fit to be one of them, among them. You see, it's not just the deformity that he became when he became sin for us on the cross in verse chapter 52, verse 14. It's here that men saw him that way before he was deformed, before he was beaten and, and torn to shreds by the torture. That's how we saw him, was in that light. He doesn't belong among us. And that final word there in verse 3, esteem is a really calculated word. In fact, it means something of a monetary value. That's where it comes from. It is to say that Jesus, in a sense, is worthless to the natural man to these people that are seeing this servant. 
It, it talks about his worth. We don't esteem him as having anything of value. In fact, you, you can kind of see this play out in the trial of Jesus. The, the, the crowd is crying out, crucify him, crucify him, right? And what else are they saying? Release Barabbas. Oh, we'll trade this, this man, whom we despise, we reject, we esteem him as worthless. Give us the murderer. Give us the insurrectionist. That's who he was. That's who Barabbas was, Luke 23, 18 and 19. They all cried out together. So they're crying out, crucify Jesus. And they're crying out, away with him, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection that perhaps he started in the city and for murder. And so because of man's despising the servant of the Lord, they traded the guilty sinner for the sinless one. But that's what's going on in Isaiah 53, isn't it? God is giving the guiltless one for the guilty. That's what's happening here. But we as believers, sometimes we overlook these, these natural problems. How can a servant be exalted to the, the, to the degree that only God should be exalted? Verse 13 of chapter 52. How can he be exalted even while he suffers to that degree? He was monstrous in their eyes. Jesus says, this is my hour of glorification. He's trembling and seeing it. And he says, when I'm lifted up, this is an allusion to his being exalted. And yet, it's astonishing how much he's suffering. How is it that he humbles kings, but many do not believe the report of him, and in fact are foretold that they will not believe in him. Why would God not make Christ naturally attractive to men, someone the people could get behind? And in all these questions, this is not the way that Isaiah nor Paul nor John addresses the main problem of unbelief. The main problem of unbelief is not asked this way, God, why didn't you just make him palatable? Give us somebody we can follow. You remember John the Baptist? The one who said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, right? His slipper, so to speak. I'm not worthy to do that. Well, later John's in prison, and he's wondering, is this the one? Are you the one? We tend to make faith this thing that is so square. You fit into this mold if... If you just understand all these categories of this man, and this man cannot be understood, naturally speaking. That's what we're reading here. The way that Isaiah addresses this, and we'll read other places in Scripture that addresses the problem of unbelief in this, this servant, the Savior, is found back in chapter 53, verse 1. After he asked that question, which is interpreted as being a question of foretelling of, of, of unbelief, he says this, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now this rhetorical question gets to the heart, I believe, of unbelief and true faith in Christ. The prophet is not taking a survey to find out who has or who has not heard the gospel here. 
After Christ comes and fulfilled this prophecy, we could paraphrase, I think, what I understand the, the prophet as saying here in this phrase, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He says, to whom has God, Lord Adonai, the sovereign one, saved through his son, through the servant, by the gift of saving faith? Who has he saved by revealing who this servant is? Who has he saved? Why do, we, why do I say that? Why do I say it that way? Back in chapter 52, verse 10, in fact, many believe that chapter 52, verse 7, if you go back there, we read what Paul quotes again in chapter 10 of Romans, that, that the gospel is something that is a beautiful proclamation to, to spread throughout the world, right? How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good tidings of great joy. Now, that's what verse 7 says, Verse 10 talks about the arm of the Lord, what we read there in verse 1. Look at what he says there. The Lord has bared his holy arm. The Hebrew uh, scholar Alec Motyer says the idea here is as God, as if God is rolling up his sleeves to go to work. What's the work he's going to accomplish? He's bearing his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. When I am lifted up, here's Greeks, here's Jews. I will draw all men to myself, Jesus says. And here's this arm of the Lord. When he bears it before all the nations, here's what it will accomplish. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's the work that God is going to achieve through the bearing of his arm. And this is the way the arm of the Lord is described as it happened in bringing Israel out of Egypt. That great picture of salvation that would come through God delivering his people from slavery. And we know all that has to do with sin and this foretelling, this foreshadowing of our salvation. But look how it's described, Deuteronomy 26.8. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt, how? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The arm of the Lord is understood to be his power to save. And here, I believe, and I agree with that scholar Alec Ma'ir, that it is being personified by the servant. That's what they're not believing in, the gospel. What is the gospel concern? It concerns Christ. He is the means of salvation. He is the one whom God has given the strength of God to save his people from their sin. The arm of the Lord, I think, is best understood to be regarding Christ himself, the one who's despised, we despise, we reject, we hide our face from, we esteem him as worthless. And naturally speaking, that's what we would do. On Good Friday tonight, if we're Christians, and I look out here and I'm blessed to see not just our church, I see Quai Baptist Church here, and I see family here, and I'm praising God. Because we confess together that Jesus became our Passover lamb 2,000 years ago. That's what Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 5. 
8. And through him, through Jesus, the wrath of God has been satisfied, propitiated. It's been removed from our account. He bore it. Jesus became almost something other than human when he took upon himself our sin on the cross. For the purpose, when he became a curse for us, so that we might have the righteousness of God through him, in him. So that we would have mercy, God condemned the Son. You see, we believe that God saves sinners through Jesus, through this servant. When we look at this, this servant psalm, we are brought, aren't we, to worship, to admire him, to love him more, to feel the desire to humble ourselves, to remember what he did for us in humbling himself. This is because we believe. Isaiah 53.1 teaches us two very clear things. First, not many believe the gospel. Not many did believe Jesus. Not many received him when he was on the earth. Not many heard his voice. And that's what the prophet is explicitly saying in verse 1 at the beginning there. Who has believed our report? And the, the rhetorical question is answered, not many in the New Testament. These at least did not. And second, I believe that Isaiah 53.1 is teaching us that saving faith in Christ is not a natural response to Christ. Meaning, it's not in us innately. It's by the grace of God. You see, after the Apostle John quotes Isaiah 53.1, describing their unbelief, the crowd's unbelief, he goes on to quote Isaiah 6.10. And he, this is what Isaiah 6.10 says as the Apostle is quoting or referencing it in John 12, 39, and 40. And this is, listen to what he said. Therefore, they could not believe. Not they would not, they could not. That means they're not able to believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. When Jesus cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and, and he's bearing his soul out because they do not know the peace that is laying at their door. They're crying out, even Hosanna. And they're screaming that this is the one who's come to bring us peace. But they didn't understand. They thought the peace that he was going to bring to them was from the Romans. The peace that he brought was from God. From the wrath of God. The most important peace that we need. But their eyes were blinded, he cried out, as he lamented over their unbelief. Even as they would not, they could not. It says here in John 12. And if we're here tonight worshiping Christ, the arm of the Lord to save us, that we're trusting in this is Good Friday because he paid it all for us. And we know he accomplished it. And as Kyle said when we were praying beforehand, we know this is Good Friday because this isn't the end of the story. 
Sunday is God's amen to Christ. It is finished when he's raised from the dead. But we're here and we're believing and we're recognizing and following. Then we ought to recognize and follow two basic truths. And and I'll close here very quickly. Christ suffered to save us. Listen to this. And and the reason why I'm putting it this way is so that we'll come to a place of, of worship here tonight. I think that's why God's people gather together, primarily, is to worship God. That's what we need. That's what we're saved for. That's what we're going to be doing for eternity. It's, the, it's what we're created for, to glorify God. And that's why I say it this way. Christ suffered to save us because men did not believe him. They did not trust him. They did not believe in Jesus. Their unbelief was part of God's plan to save sinners. Now, Every one of us should hear that and read that. I should read that with a gulp in my throat. With, can I say that? But listen to what Scripture says. Not only was it illustrated in Isaiah's prophecy, God did not send somebody who was a charismatic figure who would gather everybody to himself by a natural proclivity. Hey, he looks great. He sounds great. He's got a great message. I'm going to follow him. It's not what we see here, the Isaiah depicts this servant as. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 2.8, the apostle just says it explicitly. None of the rulers of this age understood this. That is the mystery of God in the gospel. They didn't understand it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. Their unbelief led them to crucify Christ, who is the Lord of glory. They didn't understand. But then John says in John eleven forty nine 49 through 53, Caiaphas was one of these leaders. You see, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to those who wanted to kill Jesus, you don't know anything at all. And here, I can see him standing up. I'm going to give you the solution to this Jesus character. Here it is. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And here is what I think Caiaphas meant. Don't you know we can get him to be killed? We're all going to get off scot-free. It's going to be great. But here's what John says that God spoke through Caiaphas. This is how God sovereignly works. Listen to what John describes what is happening here. Verse 51. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. It's almost like Caiaphas didn't know what he was speaking about. He didn't know how profoundly he was speaking. Here he's speaking, this is our way out. But what he's speaking about, according to John, is this is substitution. Jesus is going to die so sinners don't have to. So his people won't. So those who believe on his name will be forgiven. That's, and, and I'm not making that up. Being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They are doing exactly what needs to be done in unbelief that God is doing through them to save his people. Marvel at this. Acts 4.24 probably says it is clearly as anywhere in Scripture. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our David, Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, 
Why did the Gentiles rage, the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, namely the murder of Jesus, the Son of God, the servant. Their unbelief led to his suffering. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says this, It was the will of Yahweh to crush him, to put him to grief. Second, saving faith in Christ is not something, as I've been saying, that comes naturally to you or I. And this is clearly illustrated in our text. It's also explicitly declared in Scripture. Why would we follow someone like this? Naturally speaking, it does not make sense why we would follow someone like this. First Corinthians 2.14 says it clearly. The natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Apart from the grace of God, that's everyone. The natural person does not accept these things to be true. They are foolishness. They're folly to him. What do you mean God became man and died? You realize what you believe, Christian? You know, I, I read some skeptic, and uh, somebody was arguing that John 1.1 really says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's what the Greek actually says, not what the Jehovah's Witnesses say that it says a God. It actually says what it says in our Bibles, that the Word was God, and yet he was with God. He was God, and he was distinct. And he became flesh and all these points that we hold so dear and love and believe and profess and confess in the world. And a skeptic said underneath that, that doesn't make any sense. I praise God if you have faith that you trust that to be true. That God has revealed that not only to your mind but to your heart that that is true. But you see, the natural man sees that and says, how does that make sense that he can be God and he can be distinct? And we know, we don't believe that God is irrational and just making illogical things up. We trust this to be true. We trust to be understandable. And so we understand that God is one God, one in substance, three in person. We teach it to our children. We believe it. But when the natural man hears that, they go, what? but we're trusting in it for our everlasting good. And you're only saved if you believe it. That's saving faith, but it's not natural to us. It's not something we're just going to come to by our own ability. That's what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 2.14. These things are spiritually discerned. If you're believing in Christ, praise God, worship Him, because He is the reason. His grace is the reason. That is what is distinguished unbelievers and us in the final analysis it is not your ability it's not your strength it's not your might it's not your intellect that's done it it's God he's made 
by grace, that faith. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. By grace, you have been made alive. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's not of your own doing. It's not of your works. It's all a gift. If you see the glory of God in the face of this suffering servant, it's because God has loved you in him from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. He has loved you with an everlasting love. 1 Corinthians 1.26. So what's our response on this Good Friday? And I'm going to read through verse 31 and then we'll have the Lord's Supper. Consider your calling, brothers, sisters, God's people. That's who he's writing to. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. No one's saying amen to that. Amen. Not many were powerful. We hold a lot of sway in this world. Not many were of noble birth. I don't know one of us that was. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord as we come to the table that God has put before us. He's laid this table before us as we remember Christ. Let us remember that we boast only in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how do we thank you enough? How do we with words thank you for your grace upon us? Sinful though we are. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were children of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were at enmity with God. When you, when, when you loved us so deeply, we were enemies at that time. Christ died for us. And we know that the scripture goes on to say, much more now that he is risen, shall we have life in his name. You love us. You love us by grace alone. Lord, I pray that we would not trust in the arm of flesh, but only in the arm of the Lord for our salvation. And I do pray for those who might be here in unbelief, that they would not look to their own selves, their own power, their own ability, their own works, their own righteousness, nothing in their hands, I pray that they would look to, but only in the cross of Christ that they would trust and that they would be saved by believing in him. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.